Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. The question that I wanted to answer is, can women preach? That's not a question of whether they have the capacity or the ability to be able to do it. It's, it's really a question of, are they, do they have the authority to stand on a platform and preach? Or how about this? And this might sound crazy to you, but are they allowed to preach to, to men? Or are they only allowed to preach to, to women and, and to children? And this question, this is a really big question. And I don't want you to know that I didn't decide to just look at this in the last couple of weeks. In fact, I'm just going to be totally honest here. I actually already knew that this was a question months ago. I have more books on this subject than any other subject uh, within Christianity. Because it's a, it's a really big topic. We prayed over it. Elders and I, we, we've, we've spoken about it. Just to give you a bit of an understanding about how I, I look at this question. Uh, so Sarah and I, were the senior pastors here at Bright Church. And Sarah just volunteered. She said, you know, and she's always said this, if the scriptures say that, that you know, I shouldn't be a senior pastor, or if the scripture said that I can't be an elder, then, then I would just step aside. She says that because she respects the scriptures and, and, and so do I. This is, this is literally one of the most controversial questions within Christianity. Outside of Christianity, they think we're nuts for even talking about it. But within Christianity, it, this is one of the most controversial questions because it's got a lot to do with not, not so much... Uh, you know, the subject matter itself, but how you approach the Bible and, and, and do you allow it to have a position of authority in your life? Like, will you actually read the Bible and, and do what it says? This is a highly politically driven topic. There are entire movements, uh, you know, around the world that would stake their entire view of Scripture and, 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 and how authoritative it is in their life on this one question, there are movements that in order to be a part of that movement, you have to be able to answer this question the way that they, the way that they see it, the way that they want you to answer it. And, and, and so this is, this is a really, really big topic. If you're new, um, I'm so glad that you're here, but I'm going to be honest with you. You, kind of, you came on kind of a strange day. And, and, so, and so I'm going to uh, take off my preacher's hat. I'm going to put on my teacher's hat today. And, and hopefully, um, you know, this will be really helpful to anyone that's had questions about this topic. Now, let me begin here. The way I think about what we believe is kind of like concentric circles. So in, we, we, we would have in the middle of those circles, um, absolutes. Absolutes would be things like God, you know, is in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, in the center of that circle, we would say you're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not a result of your works, but as a result of God's grace. Then we might move out to another circle. And some people are going to say, well, I have a strong conviction on giving. And other people are going to say, well, I have a strong conviction on tithing. And, and, and then you could go out and people just have opinions. And so we have absolutes, convictions, and opinions. And so we understand that some of those things are going uh, are gonna to differ, but I'm going to say a lot today. And if you're new to church, you don't come very often. Some of this is probably honestly going to go just a little bit over your head. Here's the most important thing I want you to get today. God loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. He sent Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of the entire planet. And if you give your life to Him, your life will be different. I want you to understand that point because that is more important than anything else I say. Because here's what I've understand to be, understood to be true about the Bible and interpretations and, and, and all the rest of it. You can be wrong about a lot, but if you're right about that last point, if you understand the gospel, you can get into heaven and be wrong. So to me, that's one of the most important parts that you need to understand. Uh, but, but let me go ahead and, and, and say this. When I, when I was growing up, um, you know, in my home, no one told me that dad was the boss. It just felt that way. And it's not like my mom didn't have a perspective or an opinion or not that she didn't even voice her perspective. But it was like, if dad said something to be honest, it was kind of final. It was just, you know, the way that it worked. And I don't know if that was your experience, if, if your dad was just the authoritative person inside the home. Uh, a lot of people look at it like that. Um, I, I spoke to some of our staff and some of our leaders and I said, hey, you know, to, to, the, to those that were married. And I said, hey, 
how does it work inside of your home? Would you say that your husband is the spiritual authority in the house? And more often than not, people said, yes, that's exactly what we think. The husband is the spiritual authority. I said, practically, how do you live? And they said, we talk about everything. We make decisions together. And I think it's kind of funny that, you know, we, we can have these belief systems that we say, well, practically, we do things that are very different to how we think about it theologically. But, it, but the reason that people do think about it like that, you know, being the husband is the spiritual authority in the home is because, to be honest, in the Bible, there's a lot of places where it is written. I mean, you read the Scriptures and if you see in 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, how are you going to deal with that, you know? I, it's funny because I, I went to some people and, and I asked them, I said, hey, what do you make of that scripture? They're like, I didn't even know the Bible said that, you know? And so we have like a, we have a literacy issue in the, in, in the Bible, in, you know, with, with Christianity today. So like a lot of people are not reading their Bibles uh, and, and there's a lot of scriptures in there that we might want to just read and, and, and understand. Now, whenever I talk about this topic, it's always interesting because uh, people will come up to me and say things to me like, but what about Joyce Meyer? And, and what about Priscilla Shira, who are women that lead and run great churches? They're highly gifted. But can I be totally honest about that? I don't care. I don't care how gifted they are. I don't care how talented they are. Because for me, I can't be making decisions over the Scriptures based on people's talent. That would just mean that we don't even appreciate the Word of God, you know? And, and, I, and I, wanna, I wanna know what it says. I've heard messages preached on this topic. I was at a conference, it wasn't even that long ago, and there was a person who got up and, and preached. And, and this person shared a scripture on this subject matter. And they said, in the Bible, it says that there's no such thing as Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. So there's no such thing as, uh, as roles within the church and women can do everything. And, and, I, and I heard that. The only problem with that is that that scripture has absolutely nothing to do with the offices of authority when it comes to church. The, re the reason this is a problem is because when people that are theologically astute hear defenses like that, they think that you just don't know what you're talking about. So what I want to do is I want to look at what the Bible says. I'm interested in that. And I'll tell you something else. Whenever we make decisions, we can't make it based on how we feel or what our emotions are. I can't do that. If I tell you that the reason that we're looking at these scriptures is because I feel sorry for women today, that would be a travesty. To say that I feel sorry for women, so we're going to let them stand up and do whatever they, they want and they can preach because we feel sorry for them, would not only do a disservice to the scriptures, but it would do a disservice to women saying that really the Bible doesn't say that, but we feel bad for them. So just let them get up and do whatever they want. No, 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 no. Listen to me today. I want to see it in the scriptures. I want to see it untwisted in the Bible. I want to look at the meaning of the words and not just the surface of what it says. And I want to know that this direction should it be embraced, that it is a legitimate, biblically defendable position for women being able to be co-equal in, in, in ministries and in churches. That's really what I want to see. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to introduce some words to you. Some of you, maybe most of you, I, I don't know, may have no idea what these words are, but you do not know about the person that is sitting next to you. And maybe this is an issue for them. Maybe this is something that they care deeply and profoundly about. So I'm going to share one message that hopefully is going to help everyone at every level, no matter where you are and what you think about this topic today. So there are three positions that you can take on the issue of women in ministry. One is what we would call a hierarchical position, which is that women can only preach to other women and they can preach to children, but they do not belong on the platform. They cannot preach to men. Uh, they are, are not allowed in the offices of authority. That would be what we would consider to be an extreme view in one direction. It's a scale. So at the other end of the scale, we have the position of what we would call egalitarian, which is the idea that even though we would affirm the distinctions between genders being male and female and ha like, like little asterisks on this, yes, I believe there's only two genders. And so, and so why we would say that each one of those genders would be different and, and they could complement each other, there is nothing to be said about the distinction between roles of authority when it comes to men and women, that men and women are equal and 
they can do all, any role that they want, either one. Well, in the, in the 1990s, there was some people that didn't feel like, you know, hierarchical sort of supported their perspective, and they didn't feel that, you know, uh, egalitarian supported their perspective, so they introduced a new word, and it's called complementarian. And the complementarian position would be held by a lot of reformers, a lot of reformed churches would, would think this way and, and, and hold true to, be, to, to this. And here's what they would say. They would say that men and women are equal, but they have roles that are distinguished in the Bible, but that women could not be senior pastors. They could not be elders in that sense. And so there are some things that they can't do. So when I heard that, that, that word, that phrase, complementarian and the idea of roles, to be honest, I kind of liked it because I thought that fits. That seems less offensive. You know, I, I like the way that that is phrased. You know, uh, men have roles and, and women have roles and, and, and you know, uh, that makes sense. But it, to be honest, it depends what you mean by the word role. It, it really does. So like to, to understand, and, and one of the reasons why I have a little bit of a problem with the way that this is phrased is because when we talk about men being able to do some things and women being able to do some things, it, the way that it's presented, it sounds like it's very equal, but it's not. Because what, the, what they're essentially saying is that men can do everything, but, there's, uh, but women and women can't do everything. So my point is there's no corresponding list for jobs that men can't do. They're allowed to do everything and women can't do everything. That's really what that means. So when Sarah and I first got married, we decided that there would be things that I would do and things that she would do. The things that I would do were probably the things that Sarah just didn't want to do. And let's just say that I'm better at them, like the gardening. Sarah doesn't like the gardening. She doesn't like to, she, she, I don't think, have you ever mowed the lawn? Even, no, not even once in our entire marriage. She's never done that. And, uh, and so let's just go ahead and say that I'm better at it. Um, but, but then, you know, uh, that, that makes everyone feel, it just makes Sarah feel comfortable. You're better at mowing. Like, she could do it, but anyway, it's not going to happen. It's cool, I, I get it. But you know what? When it comes to cooking, I'm not a great cook, you know? And so Sarah does most of the cooking, and that's not like a sexist thing. It's just like, she's better at it than me. And so when we think about roles and we say, I, I, I like the idea of people being allowed to flourish in the area of their gifting. We even run a growth track, you know, here at, at Bright Church so that people can discover the area of their gifting and then we like to give them permission to pursue that gift and and being able to use that gift right so when we say oh yeah but there's different roles that that kind of makes sense but what I just said about us doing different roles based on the gifts that we've got is a completely different idea to an entire gender being subordinated because of that gender that's not about talent, skill, or ability. That's about their gender, saying that because they're female, their role is subordination. That is a different idea. I want you to be clear on that so that you don't get confused about the whole topic. So when we talk about men and women, you know, or men being, uh, uh, women being subordinate to men, so where do, where do people get these ideas from? Especially if you're not a Christian, you'd be like, where do people get these ideas from? Well, I get them all from the Bible. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read a couple of scriptures out to you so that you can understand how people can get this perspective. So the first one would be out of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. And it says, I do not permit a woman to teach uh, or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. How do you ladies feel about that today? Okay. Wives, submit to your, to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Wives, submit to your husbands. How, how do you feel about that? Is that good? A lot of the men are going, yeah, this is all right. You know, this feels okay, all right. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So when we see that, there's like an ordered sort of list here. So the head of every man is Christ, but the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ 
is God. That's interesting because we're going to talk about that in just a moment. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, you'll see principles about marriage. Um, if you read Genesis chapters 1 to 3, you'll read about creation and what did God, did He create roles in the garden for Adam and, and for Eve? Uh, and then there's Jesus's example. Here's what I want to tell you from the very beginning. Um, there are very godly people that would disagree on this topic. Both of them godly, both of them wanting to honour the Scriptures and just do exactly what it says with sincerity in their heart. And regardless of the perspective that I take, I, I appreciate so many people with different perspectives and different view who have added so much subject matter to, to this. I, I, I think we need to, we, we never want to get to a place where we feel either prideful about our position or our belief system. We got to understand that there are some very godly people that would just look at it and approach it completely differently. It's also important to understand this that whatever perspective we arrive at today or whatever I, I say today, if, if you disagree, you can still come to this church. You can be part of this church, but you're just going to have to sit under it so, so, and, 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 and understand it and be part of it. But you're welcome to come even if you disagree with some of these perspectives as well. I don't know who first said this, but someone said this phrase and, and has found it very helpful. A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, we take things out of context, they're not going to make sense. So you need to understand the uh, relationship that language and culture has in its day and in its age. You think about this, like we're Australian. So even like we say things right now that the rest of the world has no idea what we mean. <laughs> Let me give you an example of this. If, if I say, yeah, nah, what does that mean? What if I say, nah, yeah? Nah, yeah means yeah. Yeah, nah means nah. And imagine if, if you were trying to explain this to people, it's like, people, what, what does that mean? Imagine if like Australia got buried thousands of years later, they're reading this and, it's, and they say, yeah, nah. It appears they couldn't arrive at a decision. And, and so <laughs> they said, yeah, nah, nah, yeah. That means the same thing. They had no idea what they were talking about, you know? And so people couldn't understand that. We need to look at what the Scriptures say, so why don't we do that very thing and, uh, and, and start to understand it. Let me start first with Jesus, because a, a really great um, uh, argument uh, around Jesus is the example that He set and how He lived His life, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, Jesus broke a lot of cultural traditions. Why did He have 12 male uh, apostles? Why did He have 12 disciples that were all men? I think there's some pretty good reasons for that. Number one, uh, Jesus in His ministry for those three years was completely nomadic. So they would just have to travel around for extended periods of time, sleeping out in the open. It, it was, to be honest, it was dangerous, you know, for, for w women to move around and sleep in the open just as the men did. Not to mention, and this is just being honest, right? There are some female hygiene issues that would need to be dealt with out in the desert. Not the best place to deal with that. I think practically it, was, it made a lot of sense to have men be part of that. Not to mention the fact that the job of the uh, apostles or the disciples was to witness Jesus' ministry, His death, His burial and His resurrection and to testify to that. And in the culture, a woman's testimony was not listened to. So the problem would be you've got these people that saw and heard everything, but no one's listening to them because their testimony was discounted simply because they were women. In addition to that, when you look at the 12 disciples, we say, where did he get that number 12 from? Well, there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples. Don't get me wrong. Jesus had a lot more disciples than that. You can read that in the Scriptures for yourself. But the reason He chose these 12 specifically was to help convey to the Jewish people a message that said, I am doing something new with this nation. And that's why He chose 12 male apostles. Now, if He chose uh, uh, you know, six male and six female, then they would not even recognize what he meant when he said, I'm going to do something with Israel. There's going to be a new Israel. How many of you would know that when the Bible talks about, you know, the new Israel and it talks about his people, oftentimes we, we interpret that to know and understand that he's talking about us. 
Well, he wanted that message to be really clear to the Jewish people. And so I think that there are plenty of reasons, honestly, why Jesus chose 12 male apostles. If you really want to get specific about it, in Acts chapter 6, it says that the men, they needed to choose um, some able men to distribute the food to the Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews. And so would we then say that now only men are allowed in the kitchen? Only men are allowed to do that stuff. Only men are allowed to do the distributing. No, 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 we wouldn't say that. And so we need to understand what is happening and the context and, and how it's meant to be understood. So, so people would say, even if you say that about Jesus, what about the Scriptures? I mean, there's just some Scriptures there that are explicit in their content and what they say. And this is really important. And the reason it's important is because this has had a profound impact on the church, on culture, on society. In fact, when I was doing some of my reading, I came across so many stories and testimonies that honestly were just really shocking. Let me give you a couple. There was one by a missionary woman who got up to speak in a church and out of protest, the men in the church who could not stand to listen to a woman speak in, 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 with a microphone in an author, authoritative position, they all got up and they turned their chairs around and they faced the back of the room in protest that they should not have to listen to a woman. Another woman who, who was quite theologically astute wrote a, a, a book and uh, uh, then she had a book signing. And so all the people were lined up to get their book signed by this woman who wrote this, this incredible book. And um, there was a man in the line. And when he got to the front, he said, I want you to know. And he gave this book back to her. He said, I was really enjoying this until I found out that you're a woman. You can keep that. And so she was like, oh, well, God bless you, you know. And, and, and so why? Just simply because a woman was the one that wrote it. It's really bizarre the kind of things that churches and, and people have tried to do to get around this issue. For example, um, when some women have gone to speak into churches that don't allow women to preach or teach, what they did is, is all the men had to get out so the women could sit there and the, and the women could preach to the women, but the men wanted to know what the woman was speaking about. So they just went into the room next door where they have a speaker and they sat there listening to it. In other words, that was a way of getting around the issue of sitting in front of a woman that teaches. This is just stupid, isn't it? And, 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 so, and so it was more than that. They wanted to hear what a woman would say. And so they said, well, listen, if I just invite you to our house and we just have a conversation, that's not officially you teaching, right? You see the lengths that people are getting around that even men would go to so that they could listen to what women say simply because of the way that the church, that they were in was structured. This is really important. Everything I'm talking about today, because how you read the Bible is how you will live your life. So what we want to do is look at the Scriptures, to look at what they say, go beyond some of the words that are just written in English, to understand the context, the culture, and the meaning of those words to really unearth everything that we think is going on in the Scriptures. Is that good with you today? Yeah. Are you following me so far? Yeah. Okay, good. So I'm going to read to you out of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The context of this scripture is that it is written to a culture where men clearly dominated women. Women were uneducated. Women would manage the homes, but they were often given to their husbands. A husband would be found for them and their job was to obey their husband. It's in the framework of that culture that the gospel begins to emerge and Paul writes a letter to help them understand the merging of the freedom that they have in Christ with the cultural context that they find themselves in. There are two words that you can use for authority. So this is a word that Paul uses. There are two words that you could use for authority. The first word that Paul usually uses when he says the word authority is the word exousia. But in this case, he uses a different word. The different word he uses is authentine. And the word authentine is translated as authority. 
And authority in our culture is simply a neutral word. For example, teachers have authority, parents have authority, police have authority. It's just a neutral word. But that is not meant to be translated as a neutral word. In fact, there is almost an unbroken tradition in history of that word authentine being translated to mean either uh, to dominate or to usurp authority over another. The word itself, authentine, the root word for authentine comes from the word murderer which is to prevail against someone and over someone over their will. That's the root word. In other words, Paul wanted to make a distinction between his normal word for authority and the seriously negative word that he uses in this passage to help us understand that whatever authority he's talking about, it's a bad kind of authority. This is a really negative way for for people to act and behave. Now, the Apostle Paul, he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And we say, well, is he dealing with two issues there? Is it teach and, would we say, to exercise authority? But actually, when you look at it, the way that Paul would write, and you can see this in many, many, many passages that Paul writes, he often uses two words or ideas to convey one concept, one idea. He's worried that these women are teaching with a view to dominate and assert authority over their husbands. If you can imagine, this is not going to go well in the culture. The gospel would be squashed before it even gets off the ground because suddenly we've got an uprising of people that are saying, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to listen to my husband. I'm free in Christ. You know, and so Paul's saying, hang on here. Let's find a way to make this work in a way that is going to benefit everyone. So when he uses the word authority, we understand that's negative. You with me so far? And he uses the other word teach which is also a neutral word. But the word that joins the word, there is a word between teach and authority. That joining word is only ever used to uh, convey synonyms or to join synonyms, right? Meaning that whatever one word means, the other word is a synonym for it. Now, if we understand that authentine at the root word is a very negative word from the root word murderer, we can easily understand that the word teach, it is not just implied, but strongly conveyed that that is negative too. It's some kind of negative form of teaching. And so the phrase would probably be translated better as this. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach, and we would argue, say falsely, with the view of dominating the man. Listen, I totally agree with that. Women should not teach with a view to dominate the men. But I would equally say that men shouldn't teach necessarily with a view to dominate the woman or or, or women in general. And what is the context of uh, this this entire book or this letter that, that Paul writes? The entire issue that Paul is dealing with is false teaching. And so I feel like what Paul is really saying is there is some strange teaching that's coming out and I, wouldn't, I do not permit a woman to usurp authority over her husband with a view to dominate him. Hey, that's not right. And I think that all of us would equally stand in agreement with that. If you look at the whole, the whole passage though, if you read the whole chapter, here's where it gets kind of interesting because it says in, verse, in chapter 2 and verse 8, I desire that that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So would we deduce from that statement that number one, every place, oh, this must be for all time. And he's addressing the men. So only the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Women, if we see you lift your hands when you pray, you will be in trouble. But he does give you a little loophole here. Apparently you're allowed to quarrel and be angry. No, we wouldn't say that. We, We would never say that, right? And then he goes on to address the woman and he says likewise that women should adorn themselves with a respectable apparel yes we agree with that there are some things that we would say are inappropriate you know and he says but he goes on to say not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire if 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 
you want, if it would make you feel comfortable, we'll, we'll take the, 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 the buckets that we use to collect the offering, empty all of your gold into it. Please, women, take out the braided hair, you know, and, and, and people would say, whoa, 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 hang on, I think you're taking it out of context. That was cultural. Oh, but the part about men and women, oh, that's for everyone for all time. Is it? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, especially not because Paul seems to be happy to have women in positions of authority. In fact, if you read uh, Romans chapter 16 and verse 7, it talks about this woman named Junia, who is a female apostle. And that word Junia, this, what I just said to you, is probably the most argued over word in the Bible. And, and it's argued over because if there is such thing as a female apostle, then everything else that people believe has to come into context with what Paul just said. Here's where it gets weird. In the 17th century, people started changing what was written in the original language by adding just one letter, and it was the letter S. So with no extra Greek um, content, translators said, look, it's more likely that that would have been a man because we know that there's no such thing as a female apostle. We're going to add an S in there, and that is actually the male version of that female name. There's a few problems with this though. Number one, they just made it up. That's a pretty big problem, you know? Would you agree with that? Okay, that's good so far. Uh, the second problem with it is that there has never be, ever been found another version of the name Junius. In fact, Junius, they said that it was a condensed version of a longer male version of the name. No one's ever found the name Junius. And so what most contemporary commentators would say is that that is absolutely a female and the reason that they decided to change it back in the 17th century was because it implies that it is an apostle which is why they decided to try to tweak the Greek does that make sense boy that just preached so well then so people would say hang on wait a minute there's other scriptures. Like, even if you say that, there are other scriptures. By all means, like, why don't we read them? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 28. And this scripture is about in the context of husbands and wives. Because we're talking about authority in general here. But Ephesians chapter 5. Now, how many of you got a Bible here today? I want you to take it out right now. I want you to look at the pages in your Bible. Some of you just thought, I'm not going to bring a Bible today. Now you feel guilty. You're like, you didn't warn us about this, you know? So I want you to look in your Bible. Here's what I want you to understand as you go to read Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, and I want you to look at verse 21. Now, before we read this, you need to understand that there was no such thing as chapters and verses. Those were added later to help people like us find that reference. So we knew what we were talking about. When it was originally written, it's just a letter that Paul write, that writes that we think is authoritative and we do believe that it's Scripture. But verse 21 begins halfway through a sentence. That's kind of odd. And then in my Bible, I don't know what it looks like in yours, but in my Bible, there is a line break, then a little heading, and then it starts to talk about wives and husbands beginning in verse 22. It's not the way that it would have been written to be read the way it was written to be read. Those things are meant to serve us. And to be honest, for the most part, they really do. They help us to find references in the Bible. They don't always serve us when it looks like there is a break in the flow of what Paul's trying to say. I would suggest to you that there is a break here. So looking at verse 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. This is Paul exhorting Christian people to submit mutually to each other. You with me so far? All right. So then after saying to everyone, men and women alike, that you need to submit, he addresses the women first. He then says, okay, so wives, just so we know, I wanted you to understand that you need to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That makes sense. I mean, gosh, he just said that in verse 21. And now he's just drawing it out, extrapolating it out. So he says, just want you to know, does that sound good to the, to the husbands that the wives should submit to you? All right, well, husbands, I'm coming for you. 
I could, wait, what about what happens next? Yeah. Dad, I pray for your marriage. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That was a, that, that's an interesting thing for Paul to say when he writes to the Ephesians. Whenever I do this at a wedding, I always like to help everyone in the room understand what's really going on in Ephesians chapter 5 here. Because really... When Paul, when Paul writes this letter, if someone was so inclined, they could have ideas that are kind of maybe delusional, where the husband suddenly, as soon as they get married, he's now in a position of authority. Woman, I mean, wife, do what I say. I'm like, maybe they're like, I'm going to lie on the couch. She's going to be feeding grapes to me. This thing called marriage is looking up, but that is not exactly what we see here. So why don't we look at what we see here? He says, uh, wives submit to your husbands because he is the head. So that's the English word, head. The, the, the Greek word is kephali. And, and, and the word kephali literally means the flesh-covered cranium. It means your actual head, which is why they translated the word as head. And that kind of makes sense. But what we need to understand is that in Scripture, we would say that is a metaphor because it's helping us to understand a deeper more spiritual profound truth so when we say that it's the head it that word could be translated a couple of different ways it kind of sounds right because we understand it's the flesh-covered cranium but that word could easily comfortably be translated as source and i'll explain why in just a little bit, but that could easily be translated as source. Let me let me give you a in terms of source of life in that in that way. So I think what Paul's doing, just to use another metaphor, is he's giving us like a submission sandwich here. The part about the wives is just the filling, but the part that is before it and the part that is after that is there to convey to us that there is a whole heap of submission that's meant to be going on, and it's not just for the women. In fact, when Paul writes this. He wrote it to a culture where women were strongly and, and quite obviously dominated. It was the role of women to promote their husbands so that they could go on to, to do great things, you know? And, and, and so that was the fra- that's the framework for the culture that Paul writes to. I think what we're seeing in here is that Paul is trying to write this gospel message and making sure that the gospel would be able to thrive in that culture. So he does it by layering, hey, both of you should submit, and the men would agree with that. And then he says, hey, and wives you should submit, and the men are like, we, so far, we are with you. But then Paul says something that they would not have expected. He said, I want you to lay down your life as Christ laid down his life. That is about sacrifice, because that's what Christ did for the church, Right? That's about sacrifice. So he's saying, men, I want you to sacrifice your lives. And he's not talking a one-time deal. He's saying, I want you to live sacrificially. You're going to lay down your lives for your spouse because you're one flesh. Don't you understand this? What we're seeing in this passage is not just for wives, but for men also. It's pretty clear that what he's saying, it's about mutual submission. And so what could be happening in this passage that would make Paul want to say that? Well, how about the fact that people are saying, in Christ, I'm free. And Paul constantly says in passages that he writes, he goes, yes, you're free. But please don't use your freedom to try to use it in the wrong way. Paul says to to use your freedom in the wrong way would be to say, I don't have to listen to you. Imagine if that was the culture. I'm free. We don't have to obey you anymore, husband. We're free in Christ. We're equal. Paul's going, no, no, if you do that, 
The gospel is going to be squashed before it even gets off the runway. We need the gospel to be able to thrive inside a culture that we is, is probably not the God-given ideal. Come on, let's, that's not hard to imagine, is it? That the culture that it was written to, that's not God's ideal picture of how men-women relationships should work. I, I don't think so at all. And the, the, the Greco-Roman culture was a fallen world. Paul simply explains to us how to allow the gospel to thrive in a culture that doesn't appreciate the God-given ideal. You with me so far? See, here's here's an ex- another example where we see not a God-given ideal, but Paul allowing the gospel to continue to move into a culture that, that is not um, exactly what God would want. He says, slaves obey your master. How many of you read that? No, no one. Oh my gosh. This is the problem, everybody. Because we're not reading our Bibles, right? But how many of you would know it says slaves obey your masters? Okay, so you, you, you know that's, that's what it says, right? So would we say then that the God-given ideal from creation was that there should be slavery? No, we, we wouldn't say that. So why would Paul say obey your masters? Because he's saying what we don't want is a cultural uprising that destroys the work of the gospel. He says, if it would serve better the gospel, if it serves the gospel better, slaves, obey your masters. This is the way that the system works. It's not the God-given ideal, but if you do it well, the gospel will be able to penetrate this culture. And and, and, and here's what I want you to do for just a minute. So take everything I said, now step back from the text, and I want you to think. I want you to think about this for a moment. Because... If we believe what this scripture is saying, it's saying that men are always the spiritual authority, right? So how does that work practically? Well, let's try to understand it. What if, and this isn't a stretch, I could give you examples of this. What if we found a husband-wife relationship where the husband, right, is really not much of a believer? The wife loves the word. She's doing her Bible studies during the week. She's reading the scriptures. She's watching like documentaries in the Bible. She's passionate about it. She's got prayer meetings that she goes to. Her husband goes to work, goes, you know, and and occasionally comes to church on Sunday. Would we say, just step back and think, would we say that the husband is the spiritual authority in the house? Well, of course you wouldn't. He doesn't even know what the text says. Why would we prescribe these conditions across all relationships when it's quite clearly evident in many relationships that the woman could be the spiritual authority. Are we saying that then even though she understands the Scriptures and could, you know, run rings around her husband, that when he says something spiritually that she has to obey in the sense that he is right? We're not saying that he's right. To me, that doesn't make sense. I hope it doesn't make sense to you because it just doesn't. Now, when I say these things, there will be some people, maybe even people here today that say, I understand what you're saying, but this is rubbish because uh, headship fills the Bible cover to cover. In fact, that's a direct quote. Headship fills the Bible for cover to cover. Okay, There's only one problem with that. It doesn't. The word headship is never found in the Bible. That's right, not once. The word head is only translated twice in the context of male-female relationships. It's kind of odd, isn't it? That we would make such a big point about it? I think that this word kafali, we say is translated as head. It could be easily translated as source. Source of what? Source of life. In other words, it's a throwback to creation where he's saying, women, before you get ahead of yourselves and, and, and you know, say that you're free and start to move into territory that's, that's not good or healthy for your marriage or our culture, before you start to do that, can you please understand, and let's just respect the fact that husbands, glo- globally speaking, in, in, and let's go all the way back to the first relationship, that the wife was created from the husband. So don't, don't try to dominate. Don't try to assert authority. Let's not try to get ahead of ourselves. The, the husband was your source. That kind of makes sense. And we should look at it too. We should look at it because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 is that scripture that I just read to you guys earlier. And it talks about how 
the head of man is Christ, and then it says, and the head of woman is her husband, and then the head of Christ is God. So this is kind of where it gets interesting. Now, I really want you to switch your thinking. If you haven't been thinking so far, you're about to. Okay? Because what was said for many, many years was we can see that there is a hierarchy, right, in the Trinity. This is probably more of a a, a recent thing. I'll explain it all in just a minute. But they'd say, see, there's the Father, and the Son is subordinate to the Father, and then you have the Holy Spirit. And that's the way that we say it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it's God is first, Jesus is second, Holy Spirit is third, right? Except that that's heresy. That's, that's actually not true. So when the complementarian position for many years grounded that women were subordinate to men because the son was subordinate to the father, they were grounding it in heresy. And it wasn't until just a couple years ago that this whole thing broke loose and people suddenly understood the reason why this was a major problem for the grounding of the subordination of women. Suddenly they thought, wait a minute, if that was the evidence and that's not true, see, the thing that you need to know is the son is not eternally subordinate to the father. He was in a position of subordination while he was on earth, but he was died, buried, he resurrected, and after he resurrected, he was back in his place being co-equal in terms of authority. We have a document, it's called a creed, the Athanasius Creed, which was designed to combat this Arian heresy that said there was a hierarchy in the Trinity. So now we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we were looking at that scripture again and we said, the reason why there's a hierarchy between men and women is because there's one in the Godhead. And that's heresy. We should probably look at the grounding evidence for there being a hierarchy between men and women. With me so far? So they say, well, hang on, even if that's true, go back to the garden, look at Adam and Eve. Eve was subject to Adam in the garden. It's a creation ordinance. That's the way God intended it for all time. Now, I'm going to agree with that because with partially with that, because if whatever we find in the garden before the fall, before sin entered the world, is God's God-given ideal. Would you agree with that today? So what we should do is read Genesis to see what it says about this. You ready for this? All right, so let's look at Genesis. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 24. It says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of, the, one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And, that, and the rib that the, Lord God, uh, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and shall, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's, that's the account of the creation of Eve. There are seven key points in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 that that the people are going to look at and take note of and argue for the subordination of Eve to Adam in, in the garden. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to run through these seven points. That's it. The first point is this. Man was created first and is first in every way. Chronological order says nothing about who is socially first. In fact, if you read the scriptures, it says in Genesis chapter 1 that man and woman were the apex of God's creation and he makes no distinction 
in chapter 1. This gets where it gets kind of weird because you read with a Greco-Roman mind, which is beginning, middle, end, but that's not the way that they wrote in Hebrew. The Hebrew would write beginning, middle, beginning. And so in chapter 1, you see Eve there, but I just told you in chapter 2 the account of when she was created. So you have to take that into consideration when you look at the chronology of and the ordering. So John Calvin, the great reformer, he said this, the argument that woman is second in rank because she was created second doesn't seem very strong. For John the Baptist was before Christ in time and yet was far inferior to him. That makes sense. John, I mean, John Calvin said that. You know, maybe, maybe it was that what God did is he made men and he looked at men and he thought, guys, we can do better than this. I know we just made one, but let's release 2.0, okay? And, and, and let's release the upgraded version. No, that's not, that's not, that would go against everything I've just said. But the point that I'm making is, is that I don't think that necessarily because Adam was created first, that he has to be first in every way. Point number two, the woman is taken from man and for man. That doesn't suggest that Adam is the leader, rather that he needed help. That, that, that makes sense to me. The fact that Adam was formed from the earth doesn't make him subordinate to the earth, does it? Well, let's remember, God created Adam from the dust, yeah? And then he created Eve from Adam. So Eve is subordinate to Adam, but Adam is subordinate to the earth. Would we say that? No, we would not say that. But right now in Europe, they're protesting saying that's true, but it's not true, all right? Like, there are people that might actually believe that. We would say, no, that's not Bible. It's not the way that it works. You know, we, we are put in charge of the earth. The earth is not put in charge of us. That, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think there, there are many theologians that would say this. They would say that taken from Adam's side represents the equal dignity, worth and potential of women. The Archbishop of Paris in 1157 said, Eve was not taken from the feet of Adam to be his subordinate, nor from his head to be his master, but from his side to be his partner. Kind of like that. Point number three, God created woman as man's helper. If she is his helper, then she is his subordinate. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> the word helper, Eza, that, that, that word doesn't necessarily imply subordinate. Let me give you an example of this. I help my children every day. I, I help my kids. I'm not their subordinate. They're mine for now. You know? Just, just because someone's the helper doesn't mean that they're the subordinate. People help people all the time without being subordinated to them. Here's another interesting thing. In the Old Testament, the word Ezer is used... 24 times, but 15 of those times, God uses that word to describe how He helps humanity. I don't think God is saying that He is subordinate to us. Do you? I, I don't know. How about this? Here's a, here's a question for you. If the Bible says that women are men's helper, does that mean that men don't have to help women? Well, it's not stated. Is, is that just the Bible? Come on. You know it's not true, don't you? Everyone understands that that's not true. Point number four, God gave the command not to eat the fruit of the tree. He gave it to Adam. And because he gave that command to Adam, that proves that Adam was the leader, which totally makes sense until you read the Bible. See, the, the problem with that argument <laughs> is that Eve didn't actually exist. She wasn't created until after that. Come on, everybody. Can you see that it would be a little bit hard for, uh, for God to give the command to a person that didn't currently exist? Does that make sense to you? Good, because some of you look like it's going over your head. I'm like, that's the easiest thing you're going to get today. <laughs> Seriously, she didn't exist, so they didn't say that. The other problem with this is that in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says that He gave the command to both of them. So I just think that there's nothing about that that makes sense. You couldn't really argue that. Point number five, it says that Adam names the animals and Eve. That implies authority over. Well, there are a couple issues with that too. If naming always represents authority over, then Hagar named the Lord Elroy. Does that mean that she is now in charge of God because she 
named him Elroy? No, that doesn't make sense. And then you have the other problem, which is that mostly in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, you would see that mothers named their children. So would we say that mothers have authority over their children for all time because they simply gave them the name? No, that is exactly why we're here having this conversation today because that is precisely what we don't see in the Old Testament. Interestingly, and you should take note of this as well, Adam never names, he doesn't name Eve in the Bible until after the fall. So that doesn't make sense anyway. Go ahead and, and you can read it for yourself in Genesis 2.23. This next point, point number six, this is, oh, this is probably my favorite one. This is my favorite one, everybody. Listen to this. I bet everyone, especially the women, are going to love this, right? Eve was the one deceived. So women are more prone to sin and deception. Women are more likely to sin than men. Really? Not the ones that I've counseled. Uh, in the fifth century, Augustine, he actually wrote this, because you've got to understand there's a whole history here that has actually believed some of this stuff. And, and this is where a lot of denominations today have emerged out of theologies and ideologies. This is what uh, Augustine said. He said that Eve had less intelligence than Adam's more spiritual mind. How many of you believe that today? I don't know, like I read that and it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Not to mention the problem that the narrator actually explicitly says that her and her husband, that her husband was with her and that he also ate. So yes, he was, he was there also. Num number seven, it says, after they both sinned, God spoke to Adam first, showing that he had put him in charge. Honestly, this one kind of made a little bit of sense to me. I thought, well, it kind of seems like that could make sense. But does that, does that necessarily imply that he was in charge simply because of that? I, I, I don't know about that. Think about it like this. Eve was deceived by the devil. Yes? Yes. Okay. The devil is so crafty that he was able to convince one third of the angels in heaven to follow him in a revolt against God, surely they must have understood that they would lose that war. But the devil is so crafty that he was able to convince a third of the angels to follow him despite that self-evident truth. In other words, Eve was deceived by the craftiest deception or deceiver of all, right? Now, if you were to come to me and say, I was deceived by my child. I would say you really might need, like, you know, I'm talking about small children, not adult children. It's like, you know, you've all seen the videos with the texture and the crayon on the walls. Did you do this? No. No, I didn't do it. You know, we've seen that. If you're going to be deceived by a small child, that's, that's one thing. But if you were deceived by the craftiest of all creatures ever designed or made, that's another thing entirely. I mean, I mean if, if some, of you, some of you may have actually been deceived into sending your BSBN account number to a Nigerian prince with the hope that he will deposit money. I mean, if you're deceived by that, it's like, come on, really? Like, people are still duped by that. But it's like, really? Do you really believe that? But Eve wasn't deceived by something simple. She was deceived by the crafty of, of, of all creatures. Adam just listened to his wife. He just listened to her and he said, yep, that sounds good. When I think about that, I'm like, she was undergoing all the deception. It was targeted at her because he was extremely crafty. Adam just was like, yeah, that's okay. He was with her and he said, yep, let's, that sounds good to me. Let's just take the fruit and eat it. Who do you reckon is more at fault? The one that's been deceived by an absolute expert or the one that just went along with it? When I read this, I think, I don't know. Now, here's the next problem with this as well. God comes, God comes to Adam and he says, what happened here? Why did you eat the fruit? What does he say? He goes, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman. What comes next? She made me do it. Who's subordinate now? Right? So with all of this subordination that Adam was meant to have, right? I read this and I'm like, I don't know. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, it's not until you get to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 that explains the entire, entire context, I think, and is the framework for not only the Scriptures that we read, but the world that we live in. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. This is part of the curse that was given to humanity when they sinned against God 
and broke the covenant agreement that was in place with God. This is the punishment that came as a result of rebellion against God. You with me so far? Okay. (laughs) He said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Look at this. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That is part of the curse. That's, that's part of the curse that we see. And so when we read this, it's commentators that want to have a different perspective. They will look at this and, and they will say, oh, you see that word for desire? That means that what Eve really wants, what women really want to do is they want to control, right? That's what, and that's the curse is for women that they want to control men. But actually, if you read what commentators, there's a lot of commentators out there that would say, no, no, no. This actually makes better sense and it's more likely that what they went word there, that word for control, it actually means to make a return to. Let me put it in its framework. We're going to live in a world where men are going to dominate women and women are going to have this desire to want to return to their position of equal authority and value before the curse entered into the world. Well, that fits. Fits because that is the world we live in. We are presently seeing this all around the world. And we see really poor expressions of this in the world and we see really good expressions of this in the world. But that is the world that we presently live in. As I look back through history and time, that is the framework and the context for all of the scriptures, that how it makes sense. See, when I, when I look at it, I see that we are right now, we are, we are living in a fallen and broken world. It would be a mistake to look at what we presently live in and say, this is God's ideal for humanity. This is what God wants. No, no, no. I think what we're looking at here is the fact that the authors of the Scriptures have found a way that even in some of the most oppressive cultures that you would ever see, they found a way to make the gospel continue to spread and to thrive by allowing the culture to exist, but by working around it and and moving through it in so many ways. As I look at the picture, when I look in the garden, I don't see that Eve was subordinate to Adam. I think they are both the apex of his creation. I think that they are co-equal in the garden. When I think about what God is wanting to do on planet Earth and we look across time and history, He's wanting to redeem perfection. It would be a mistake then to look at what's present and to say, this is perfection and this is the way it should work. See, I think sometimes there are scriptures that are like a puzzle. And, 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 and the entire Bible, it paints a picture. It's like this one big picture. And then we have these scriptures that are all about women in ministry. And we take them and we go, does it fit to me? It doesn't fit the picture of what God is wanting to do with humanity. And so when you step back, look at the words in context, understand the issues and say, is this what God wants? Honestly, I look at it and I say, no, I, I, I don't think that making women submissive is the God-given ideal. And I'll tell you that there have been times in history where people have taken what is far from ideal and tried to make it biblical. For example, slavery, especially modern day slavery, Modern day slavery was argued to be biblical for years. That's why the Americans had a civil war, the North and the South. They argued about slaves and they said, we, it's, it's right, it's biblical. How do we know it's biblical? Paul said, slaves obey your masters. It's biblical, slavery is okay for today. When the apartheid happened in South Africa, Great theologians argued for it, saying it is ordained by God because when, they, when, when the Tower of Babel was being created, God separated the, the different groups of people that was there by changing their languages. He separated them. Therefore, it is a biblical precedent that we should separate races and people. And that's how that thing was done. And so what I'm saying is, when, if I talk about slavery, if I talk about the apartheid, you go, we know that's wrong. And even if someone took you to Scripture and said, there it is, you could see what Paul said. You'd say, I know that's what it says there. I don't think that's what it means. And I know that that's wrong. 
Somehow inside of your heart, you just know it. I think this issue falls into that. Let me, let me close by saying this. I, I, I think that Jesus didn't endorse male headship. By the way, remember that word doesn't exist. I don't think He endorsed male headship. I think what He did was practical and He was interested in reaching and saving people. He wanted the sacrifice that He made to count for something and He was a strategic genius. By the way, if you ask Jesus what His idea of leadership is, it's servanthood. Now that fits with everything that the Apostle Paul has ever said about marriage and husbands and wives and leadership. That's the way that Paul wrote. I, I, think, I think the Apostle Paul wrote letters to cultures that he wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to shift the entire culture. He said, let's allow the gospel to thrive even in the fallen system that we see it in. I think that marriage works best when there is mutual submission. And I don't think that just from the Scriptures. I think that because not only has that been my personal experience, but in all the marriages that I see that do really well, that thrive, they do that well. And when it comes to the issue of women in leadership, I think that women can lead just as men do in every office, in every area of the church. I think that they can, you know. Here's what you're allowed to have. You're allowed to have a preference. I mean, if you, if you want to go to a church where there is a, a male that leads the church because that makes you feel more comfortable, I don't think God cares. I mean, you just can't take your preference and make it biblical because that's been the problem that we've seen for years. Don't take your preference and say it's what the Bible says. Just say, I've got a preference. I like this. I mean, gosh, that's why there are different churches all over the world. What do we see here? We're just seeing people's preferences, right? People like churches that are different. And it doesn't matter. Even within Reformed churches, even within Pentecostal churches, people have preferences. You're allowed to have one. Just don't make it biblical. I think that the gospel of, uh, uh, I think, or rather the Great Commission is the biggest task that humanity has ever been given. And I think we need everyone on point. We need everyone in every position pushing this message as far as we can. I want to see Christ got what He paid for. He's already laid down His life for this cause. I want to see it come to fruition. So that's the way that I think. I think the gospel needs to be heard. I think that if you're free in Christ, you are free indeed. And you shouldn't use that freedom to lord anything over anyone. I think submission is voluntary and it is asked for by Paul in relationships between husbands and wives, even in relationships, even within the framework of church. I think that the, the submission is for everyone in some sense, in some way. Does that make sense to you today? Good, because I'm done. So here's what I want to do. Why don't you close your eyes for a minute? Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.